Have you ever noticed how much difference a single dot or digit can make? I don't know if you picked up any differences in your translation if you're reading along with our Bible reading. Have you ever put an extra zero in your electronic funds transfer? Thought you hit the decimal point, but it didn't register, and maybe for your online giving, and ended up giving 10 times or maybe 100 times more than you intended? You should try it sometime. When uh, one of our girls were born, um, they were given a dosage of something in the hospital to stop with a tummy issue there, and uh, thankfully the nurse who was giving it was quite experienced and recognised the dosage was quite large for such a little baby. And on further inspection, she checked the dosage, checked the patient, checked the, what was meant to be given and all the bits and pieces, and finally realised that uh, where the dose had come from, um, they'd lost the decimal point. So they had a dosage for 28 kilos rather than 2.8 kilos. What was meant to fix the tummy problem was going to cause one, I think. We're very grateful. Um, she knew what she was doing and could see the difference between what she'd normally given babies. Maybe you've left out a digit and a phone number. doesn't matter how hard you try, you're not going to get in touch with that person, are you? Or maybe you rub out the tens column in someone's age, you end up with a king who's still a member of the creche back in Gilgal and goes into battle as a three-year-old toddler, albeit one taller than anyone else in Israel. be quite a toddler to wrestle with, wouldn't he? That's actually the situation we've got here at the beginning of 1 Samuel 13. Depending on the translation you have, uh, different translators... um, have dealt with it differently. Um, My old ESV actually says Saul lived for dot, dot, dot year and then became king and when he reigned for dot, dot, dot years over Israel. Because that's what the original manuscripts have got. It's a blank. (laughs) Or at least one of the numbers is missing and they don't know how to fill it out. Um, As I said, different versions deal with it differently. We've heard he was 30 years old and he reigned for, um, what was it, 42 years? That's probably pretty close to the mark. Uh, That's taken from some other manuscripts, as well as the fact that in Acts 13, Paul actually sums up a brief history uh, to the Jewish leaders in Antioch and says that Saul reigned for 40 years. He sort of rounds it off. Um, It's probably a little more likely than him living for one year and reigning for two and finishing his reign as a three-year-old toddler. Um, Although... My, my current ESV that says that, he lived for one year and became king and reigned for two. There is a big footnote there telling us about those variants. I'd like to think perhaps the one writing the texts as he got through the end of chapter 13 and actually comes to the downfall of Saul in the coming chapters, maybe as the scrolls turned up, there's actually a tear that falls and smudges the ink there because of his own grief at hearing what's going on in Israel and with this first king of Israel. Maybe that's a bit too um, imaginary, but uh, maybe that's what happened. Who knows? We could spend a lot of time trying to work it out, but the point here in this chapter, in the beginning of the chapter, as we've been trailing it through these last few weeks, Saul is the anointed king of Israel, anointed by God. He's now appointed by the people. We heard that reminded last week. And he's now the active king of Israel under the reign of Yahweh, always under the reign of the Lord as king, even though they've rejected him as king. But here he is. And the first thing we hear about Saul, his first task as king, surprise, surprise, is a battle, a battle against the Philistines. After all, what is it the people wanted from their king? They wanted one who was like the other nations, who would go out into battle for them and fight on their behalf. Here's his chance. 
He seemed to do all right against the Ammonites a couple of weeks ago. Let's see how he fares with the dreaded Philistines. He's in Michmash, uh, east of Jerusalem. If you want geography, I was going to do a map, but I didn't think it was crucial. Um, he's a little east of Jerusalem in Michmash. Jerusalem's not a major sort of established city yet, that it will be. And Saul's got two-thirds of the troops that he's gathered for this battle. He's got 2,000 soldiers with him. Jonathan, his son, so he can't just be three years old, can he? He's got a son out there fighting with him. He's only got one-third of the troops, half the men of his father. He's got 1,000 men with him. He's a little closer to Jerusalem, just north of it, and a little to the east at Gibeah. The rest of the men, the rest of the soldiers, Saul was sent home for the time being. They get called up a little later when round two begins and things get a little heated up, which they do quite a bit. The Philistines are smack bang in between where Saul and Jonathan are. If anything, they're closer to Saul than Jonathan. But we hear it's actually Jonathan with his reduced numbers who defeats the garrison of Philistines. And it sort of passed over pretty quickly. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let everyone hear... Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. This is the first hint we get that something's going awry in the royal family. Or at least we get a whiff of something a little off with Saul. And something quite promising with his son Jonathan, actually. Saul takes credit for Jonathan's victory. He makes sure everyone hears about it. Let the Hebrews hear, Saul has defeated the garrison of Philistines. Now, at one level, that's actually okay. It is Saul's army. He is king. So all the soldiers, even his son, are fighting for Saul on his behalf. He's the representative of the army as well as the nation as king. But I do think the writer here is actually trying to tell us something. He's setting up a contrast between Jonathan and Saul, a contrast that begins just in sort of minute detail, just tiny shades of grey, Not stark contrast yet, but by the end of 1 Samuel, there's a huge contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan remains faithful to his father all the way throughout his entire life, unbelievably so, I think. But he's far from a chip off the old block. He's so different to his dad. We're going to learn more of that next week and in the coming chapters, but keep it in mind as we go through these coming weeks. But perhaps even more concerning here is not just the fact that Saul takes the credit for his son's victory, but it's the total omission of the credit given to God. The Lord is forgotten here. Back in chapter 11, can you remember when Saul did defeat the Ammonites? He chopped up his oxen and sent them off saying, I need an army. Anyone who doesn't come, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. And he gathers 300,000 men. And he defeats the Ammonites. And at the end of that battle, Saul, Samuel and Saul say, or Saul himself says, not a man shall be put to death. Some fellows wanted some worthless fellows put to death. But Saul said, no, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. We don't hear anything of that from Saul's lips with this battle. Not at all. Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. The Lord's largely forgotten. And sadly, we soon discover that is the very issue which begins Saul's downfall. He forgets the Lord, forgets the word of the Lord. He's just been commissioned, 
coronated as king and already his downfall is imminent. He's already on the slippery slope of pride and arrogance and trusting in himself rather than trusting in the Lord. Taking credit not only for his son's work but for the work of the Lord in his own reign. He's already on the slippery slope, sadly, to becoming a failure as king. Saul is only too keen to have the people know that he is victorious, that he's defeated the Philistines. As we learn more and more about Saul, he actually seems to be quite a vain man. Even his hiding in the baggage gives a little bit of a hint to that. He's quite worried about what people think of him. He thrives on the approval of others. And he seems to starve. He gets desperate, very desperately, very quickly when that approval begins to wane. A lot of us are like that, aren't we? We do like people's approval. We don't like to put people off. We learn this right away with what's happening with Saul in chapter 13. One victory over a garrison of Philistines might give Saul some kudos among Israel, even among his own men, his army, as the rest of them are now called to join him at Gilgal. But when 30,000 or 3,000, again, depending on your version, um, I think we heard 3,000 are reading, the ESV here's got 30,000 chariots. That's a lot of chariots, isn't it? Whether it's three or 30, 30,000. 6,000 horsemen and troops too many to number, like sand on the seashore, that many Philistines come against Saul and his army. The little victory over the garrison, whoever won it, is soon forgotten, isn't it? And at this battlefield, Saul's kingship is really put to the test in public now. And it is often under pressure, isn't it, that we see the true character of a person. When we're facing a test, when we're under pressure, we see the true heart and character of a person. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, 30,000 chariots and a few other thousand men, the people were hard-pressed. They hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. Saul's army, however big it is, is running scared. Strong and capable soldiers, these are fighting men, they're fleeing for their lives. Some are faithfully standing by Saul, but those who do are literally trembling in their boots. They're waiting, they're looking to Saul for leadership. Remember, he's their king, bigger than any of them. He's their king and they've chosen to go out before them into battle. But if we're fair, they've got good reason to be afraid, haven't they? As I said, up to 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry and soldiers too many to count all against them. They're so afraid, as we heard at the end, as Saul numbered the people who were present with him, those who were left, did you notice the difference? 600. Now he had 3,000 to begin with, 2,000 with him, 1,000 with Jonathan and he's called all the rest of them and they've dwindled down to six. That's how scared they are. 600 men left. And a bit of chapter 13 we didn't have read for us actually tells us that the Philistines have made sure that the poor old Israelites, they can't even get their secateurs sharpened to prune their roses without going to a Philistine blacksmith to do it. The Philistines have made sure that there's no weapons in Israel. 
They've got a monopoly on the blacksmiths of the land. So much so that on this day of battle, we learn at the end of chapter 13, only Saul and Jonathan have got a sword or spear. No wonder they're afraid. <laughs> they're against chariots and cavalry and soldiers, and they've got two swords, maybe a couple of spears between them all. Some of them would rather be hiding in someone else's grave than end up in their own on the battlefield. That's what they're doing. I don't know about you, but I'd like to think I would stand firm, faithful and courageous to my king, strong in the Lord as a soldier on the battlefield. Wouldn't you? Or if I was Saul, that I'd do the right thing at this point and lead well, faithfully. But if I'm honest, I think I'd be trembling my boots and probably running and hiding and thinking that's the wise thing to do at this stage too. 600 men, only two swords between us all. 30,000 chariots. Can you just even picture that? I can't even imagine 30,000 chariots. 3,000 for that matter. Sounds like an unfair fight to me. I threatened the youth group there'd be a Monty Python um, scene this morning. It reminds me, if you've seen it, Monty Python's scene of the Holy Grail, where the terrible, invincible Black Knight is there guarding the way, and King Arthur comes and just sort of quite casually lops off his arm. Well, it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> chops off his leg and then chops off his other arm and chop, keeps on fighting. What are you going to do, bleed on me? He says. And eventually King Arthur just walks past him as just this invincible stump of a black knight on the ground. It's a bit gruesome, I know. He says, where are you going, you big yellow coward? Come on back and I'll bite your knees off. Or bite your legs off, whatever it is. This is a pretty unfair fight, isn't it? I think I would be more like not-so-brave Sir Robin who runs away with his coconut clapping away behind him. You need to see Monty Python. If you haven't, don't know. Many an Israelite soldier agrees with me here. It's an unfair fight. They are so afraid, they're just running scared. And Saul's getting really concerned that his army's leaving him. Not just that there's less men, they're scattering from him, their king. He's losing the trust of his own fellow soldiers. But there's something more concerning in this scene still. Something's wrong, something's amiss. It may only be one man, but someone is missing. Someone is late to the party. Samuel hasn't arrived yet. He said he would be here. He hasn't shown up. I don't know if you can remember back in chapter 10 when he anointed Saul as king before anyone else knew about it. Back in chapter 10, verse 8, Saul, Samuel said to Saul, Then go down before me to Gilgal, it's where he is, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you, and I will show you what you shall do. He had a chance then to get rid of a garrison of Philistines, and he didn't take it up. But whatever, when he got to Gilgal, he was, wait, he was to wait for Samuel to arrive and Samuel would show him what to do. Here he is. He's in Gilgal. Seven days are up. He's waited the appointed time, or at least it is the seventh day. Samuel, there's still no sign of Samuel. The Philistines are just over the hill, preparing to advance, maybe, 
And his men are so scared, they're going AWOL. They're deserting him. Saul is losing men. He's losing the favour of those who remain. And he's getting desperate. He's under the pump. And as every minute ticks by, he's getting more and more desperate. He wouldn't have had a watch, would he? He wants Samuel to get there. Samuel is late, or at least that's what Saul says. He's definitely not early. He hasn't arrived before the seventh day, but it seems that seventh day is not yet over. Maybe Samuel's just being fashionably late. But Saul is desperate. And so under the pump, feeling the pressure of the moment, in his fear and his panic, he takes matters into his own hands. Bring me the burnt offering. Bring me the peace offering. And he offers them. He has taken matters into his own hands, matters which he was never meant to take, were never his to take. Not only because Samuel was late, but also, we're told, because the people were scattering from him. That's what we're told in verse 8. We've got a neighbour um, who likes to cook the family dinner outside on his barbecue. And every now and then, particularly on the weekends, we've got that tantalising aroma of... Uh, onions and lamb cooking on it you know and it really and just sort of wafts over and just makes your taste buds go and your saliva everything's gone i don't know if it smelt quite that good but can you imagine what samuel was thinking as he finally arrived at the camp <laughs> what's that i'm smelling burnt offering don't know if it's tasted quite as nice as the onions and lamb but with that wafting through the air still samuel arrives and he knows exactly what's happened He can see it, he can smell it, but he cannot believe it. What have you done? Saul. There's no shaking of hands, there's no warm greeting, as much as Saul comes out to greet Samuel. For Samuel, there's just sheer disbelief. Maybe some anger, but I think more so grief and exasperation and disbelief. What have you done, Saul? What has he done? He's taken matters into his own hands, matters which were not his to take. He gives his reasons, his excuses. He blames his soldiers for leaving him. He blames Samuel for being late. Blames the Philistines because there's so many of them. They're about to come and get us. But he doesn't take responsibility, does he? I forced myself. I was compelled, he said. What have you done? Verse 11. And Saul says, when I saw the people were scattering from me and you did not come. Reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't it? You, this woman that you gave me, all this finger pointing. And that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered. He's got three hands to point. Had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, the timing does seem to indicate Samuel was leaving his arrival sort of rather late, doesn't it? Putting Saul under pressure. But on the other hand, Saul himself admits, I forced myself, I was compelled. He plucked up his courage, that word can mean. He went where he was forbidden to go. He's king, he's not prophet, he's not priest. It's not his role. Maybe even did it against his will or against his better judgment. But he knows that he did it. And Samuel cuts through all of that, through all the excuses and makes it clear. No matter what your excuses, Saul, what does he say? You have done foolishly. 
What's a fool in the scriptures? Not someone who's silly, stupid or dumb. Someone who says there is no God. You have acted as if there is no God, Saul. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. And the consequence? Saul has taken divine matters into his own hands, so the divine Lord takes the earthly kingdom out of Saul's hands. In seeking, as he claimed, the favour of the Lord, he's done the complete opposite and reaped judgment instead. And Saul was given pretty simple instruction, wasn't he? Wait until I come and then I'll show you what to do. Pretty simple, pretty basic. It's not complex to follow, is it? Just wait and I'll show you what to do. Saul, what have you done? Ever found yourself under pressure? Getting impatient? Unanswered prayers? Maybe big decisions to make, wanting to know the will of the Lord, but found yourself not really waiting for him to show you? Taking matters into your own hands? I'm sure there are many of us here who in, through our life have actually sought God's wisdom and his guidance, wanting to do his will, wanting the favour of the Lord in our endeavours and not wanting to go against his will. Maybe in our big decisions we've even longed for some supernatural signs. Lord, show me the way. Put out the metaphorical fleece. Lord, if this is right, show me and I'll do this and then that the Lord will open a door or close another one. But how often in our search for divine guidance, wanting big signs, have we failed to walk in simple obedience and faith to God's word? Wait, and I'll show you what to do. How often have we been looking for a word from God, but we failed to read his very word that he's revealed to us? And abide in that. Looking for a sign from God, how often have we failed to recognise the freedom and the salvation he's given us to walk in today? And looking for the favour of God, and don't we want it? But we've forgotten to remember and receive the grace and favour he's already given us in his own son. And we want something more. I don't want to minimise the gravity of sin by any means. But fortunately for us, most of the time the consequences of our foolishness don't end up as drastic or history-making as Saul's here. Saul, first king of Israel, he's acted contrary to the will of God, contrary to the instructions of the king, contrary to the commands he's given from Samuel. And he's setting a precedent here. There's no way the Lord and Samuel can actually just let this go. And so the Lord counteracts replacing Saul as king, seeking, selecting a new king in Saul's place, seeking a man after his own heart. And the grammar seems to indicate he's already sought him. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. It's as good as done. 
you have not kept what the Lord commanded. If you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But he hasn't. So the Lord has sought a man after his own heart, a man who is willing to follow God's own heart, a man who desires to follow his heart and not his own. And, or, he's also a man of God's own choosing, a man chosen to fulfill the desires of God's God's heart, rather than a man, a king of the people's choosing, of their heart. Now we're going to learn in just a few chapters' time, if we don't already know, that that man is David the next king of Israel. And as Naveen hinted to, it actually takes quite some time before David lands on the throne, doesn't it? This doesn't happen immediately. There's still a fair bit to play out. And for now, the the focus remains on Saul. Or rather, the focus actually was on Saul, but is now on God, who is turning his back on Saul as Samuel walks away. Again, there's some textual variance here. But the best way to read verse 15 is Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Samuel leaves. He hasn't offered a sacrifice. He hasn't sought the favor of the Lord. He hasn't given any guidance to to Saul. He leaves. And Saul numbers his people and there's about 600 people with him left there on the battlefield. Here's Saul the king. And all he's received from the man of God, the prophet, is a word of judgment. The Philistines are still there, preparing for battle. Saul's still in the thick of it. Sin does that to us, doesn't it? Separates us from God. It does have a drastic and dire consequence, even if not a history-making one like it is here for Saul and Israel. Every sin, the wages of sin is death. Separates us from God. There's no denying that. There's no escaping the truth. Not here for Saul and not for us. Saul failed to listen to and follow the words of the Lord. Simple instructions. Ron and I sat down the other night to start listening to a uh, a series on marriage from Ephesians 5 from a preacher. We thought, oh, four or five series, that'd be really good. And it is so far. We've only listened to the first one. But the whole of the first study, first message from Ephesians 5, do you know what it was about? It was about the authority and the inspiration of Scripture and how God's Word is the greatest thing we have. And it's so clear and it's relevant for us today, and it's authoritative, and it's here for us to follow. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119, verse 9. By guarding it according to your word. Saul might be the first king of Israel who ignores and disobeys the voice of the Lord for the first time. But it won't be the last he does, nor will he be the last king who does it. It Happens time and time again. And the Lord doesn't ignore their disobedience either. But here on the battle of Michmash, as I said, it's a pretty dire situation, isn't it? Israel here are lost, if not here in this battle, eventually for sure. 600 men with two swords between them. 
against 3,000, 30,000, you work out that it's a lot of people, isn't it? What hope is there? And now Saul's just been told his dynasty, his reign as king is going to end even before it's begun. It appears that Israel's long-term hopes are just about as hopeless as their short-term ones here. Israel are on the brink of annihilation right here. This is drastic. It appears that way. It feels that way. But remember, things aren't always as they appear, are they? And here in chapter 13, there is no fight. There is no battle. Not yet. We have to wait till next week to get to that bit. And whilst it might not fall into the same category of the dark humour of Monty Python, there are a few surprises to come in the coming chapters. But what there is for us here, what there is today for Israel in their day and for us is the promise of God. The promise of God and his electing grace. Because if not for God's electing grace, for his choosing, for his seeking a man after his own heart here, Israel would be doomed. As I said, they are on the brink of annihilation and that happens more than once in the book of Samuel. The sheer weight of numbers, the sheer context for the battle, two swords and a couple of spears maybe against thousands of troops. It's an impossible fight to survive let alone win. That's what Saul felt even before the battles begun as he waited for Samuel. He wanted this sign of God's favour. And all he's left with at the end is this judgment and 600 men and waiting for the Philistines to come. And if we're honest, sometimes we feel like that, don't we, in life? Like there's a huge battle that we're in and just we're getting whittled down and worn down and worn out. Impossible odds, maybe unanswered prayers. We've been praying on and on again. Lost all our weapons, don't have anything we seem left, no resources left to fight. Support of others around us, maybe a select few who have remained with us, but even that doesn't seem enough. I know there's churches and pastors, the offerings are down, people are staying home, they'd rather have Ugg boots and their hot chocolate sitting on the couch watching, no offence. Livestream people, if, you, if you're sick, if you're sick or vulnerable, don't take offence at that. But there are churches who have dwindled in their numbers a bit like this, almost to the same degree. Unintended consequences of COVID and trying to help with the wonders of technology. But whatever our battles, whether it's us on the same battlefield with Saul and the Philistines, the temptation's always there to, OK, I've had enough, I've got to take matters into my own hands. And we've wrestled on Wednesday night, um, as Naveen was saying, with the Bible study group. You know, when is it right to take action? When is it right to sit back? Because sometimes the Lord does call us to action, doesn't he? Jonathan does. Goes into action. We need to wait on the Lord for that and trust him. But how often have we gone forward and taken matters into our own hands without waiting on the Lord, without praying, without reading his word? We do it personally. Our prime ministers do it, don't they? Our leaders, our churches are doing it, adopting humanistic and secular strategies to try to bolster up the people so they don't leave us and scatter and leave us on the battlefield ourselves. 
But whatever our battles, whatever our struggles, whatever our failures, we too, like Israel here, are lost, if not for the Lord and his electing grace. If not for the Lord seeking a man after his own heart. Well after Saul reigned as king, well after David, who is the man after God's own heart, reigned as king, we read this in Isaiah 63. I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. This is graphic as Monty Python. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. But I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. And my wrath upheld me. That's the Lord and his servant at work because there is no one else. There is no man faithful and worthy. Saul's not the only man or king to do what he's done here, is he? We've all done it. Failed in his God-given responsibility, done something against or contrary to what he's meant to be doing. Each of us created and blessed, given a mandate in life. Be fruitful, multiply, be faithful. Have dominion, subdue, under the Lord's command and reign, rather than taking matters into our own hands. We too have fallen short of the glory of God. Where are you? The Lord said to Adam. What have you done in the garden? Is there a man who can reign in love? in obedience and faithfulness, who can go out before us into battle and fight for us. And right at the end of Scripture, the vision John's given in Revelation, at one point he weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look upon it. No one to watch over and rule over the rolling out of history and the judgments of God among the nations, the redemption of the Lord, the revealing of the truth of God's kingdom. And it all seems to be hopeless. John's just weeping, grieving. And it appears to be futile search. Things are not always as they appear, are they? There is a man. One of the elders says to John, weep no more. All is not lost. Behold, the lion, the king of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is a man God has sought after, a man after his own heart. But what is it John sees when he looks up to see this man, this lion, the king of Judah? What does he see? He sees a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain. He sees a lamb who has gone out before us and fought the battle. On our behalf. And then there's songs that are sung. You are worthy 
to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. A loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Saul tells us he sought the favour of the Lord, but he did it in such a way as to reap the judgment of the Lord instead. And he suffered the consequences of the kingdom being taken away. Saul sought the favour of the Lord. The Lord sought a man after his own heart. Yes, initially that man is David, he comes. But ultimately that man is the son of David, isn't it? The Lion of Judah. It's Jesus. The only man, the only king who is worthy who has faithfully fulfilled and lived according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. If not for him, our battle is lost. It's a hopeless case. But the Lord has sought him. The Lord has brought him to us. And he has actually taken matters into his hands, our matters into his hands, nails into his hands. So that all the matters that we think need taken care of would actually be cancelled and nailed to the cross. What was it Naveen said from the Puritan? Sin? Far greater deal than any temptation, any trial of this life. That's the greatest manner that this man after God's own heart has borne for us. And he's borne our griefs and our sorrows borne them in his body on the tree now it's a different context and a different scripture being fulfilled and maybe more a poetic point of connection than an exegetical one but at one point in Jesus life just before he was arrested he's there with his disciples and he says the time has come I told you once before go out without money bag go out without cloak go out without sword but the time has come grab your knapsack grab your money bag and grab a sword if you can And the disciples say, look, there's two swords. And Jesus says, it's enough. Only two swords was enough for the followers of Jesus that night. Will two swords be enough for Saul and Jonathan on their battlefield? We'll find out next week. But I'll give you a bit of a spoiler. It is enough. Not because... There's mighty men wielding those swords, but because of the Lord who is mighty to save. How does the psalm go? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my my shepherd king, and that's enough. He's enough. The one after God's own heart. Let's pray. Lord God, you are worthy. Christ is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. The lamb who was slain and with his blood he has purchased for you. 
us, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Father, we praise you, we thank you that you have made us together to be a kingdom and priests to serve you, our God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honour and power and wealth and wisdom. To him be praise forevermore. Amen.